Hello, welcome back to those that joined us for the first session um, and welcome if you're just joining us now. This panel is titled, Is Parliament Able to Fulfill Its Constitutional Role? If you're just joining us, I'm Jess Sargent, Associate Director at the Institute for Government. Parliament is at the centre of the UK constitution, passing law, representing citizens and holding the government to account. However, the government's strong control of the House of Commons and the issues around the democratic legitimacy of the House of Lords have raised questions about whether Parliament is an effective check on the executive. Joining me to discuss this question, I have an excellent panel. We have Sir David Lidington, a former Conservative MP who's held a wide range of ministerial posts, including Leader of the House of Commons and Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, and also a member of the Reviews Advisory Board. Baroness Smith is Shadow Leader of the House of Lords. Um, she was a Member of Parliament between 1997 and 2010 and served as a Minister under both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and is also a Member of our advisory panel. Um, Lord Wallace of Saltaire is the Liberal Democrats Lords Spokesperson for the Cabinet Office in the 2010 to 2015 Coalition Government. He was a Government Whip and Lords Minister for the Cabinet Office. And Dr Hannah White is the Director of the Institute for Government and author of Held in Contempt, What's Wrong with the House of Commons. So as a reminder, we will be live tweeting from at IFG events using the hashtag IFG Please follow and tweet along. And we'll also be asking questions to the panel from both the audience online and in person. If you're online, you can ask questions via Slido, which will be at the side of the screen which you're watching at. So let's start with what's the problem? Is there a problem? David, starting with you, given your extensive experience in the House of Lords, how much do you think MPs... Commons. Sorry, House of Commons. <laughs> <laughs> that, has what, that was what I had written so down. <laughs> um, how much do you think MPs think about the Constitution? Oh, um, pretty little. I mean, um, if you're, once you're elected as a new MP, you're completely inundated, even more these days than when I was first elected, back in 1992, by the sheer quantity of stuff that's thrown at you. <laughs> I mean, MPs now get, um, it's a minimum of you know, a few hundred, sometimes you know, thousands of emails a day. A lot of them are circulars from various organisations. A lot of them are identically worded campaign emails from various groups or, or, or other, may or may not be from constituents. And then because MPs of all parties, I think, have uh, focused a lot more on the constituency role than used to be the case, mm. they... Um, they don't, in my judgment, um, all or most even, spend enough time focusing on holding the government to account by scrutinising legislation of the day. Mm -hmm. You add into that what I think is excessive um, power of the executive compared with the legislature, um, so too often, and, and the, the reality of party loyalties, and too often the House of Commons can become a, uh, a legislative sausage machine for. Uh, particularly when it's a government with a large majority. And I remember seeing, seeing this, you know, and I saw it under um, Tony Blair's government. I'm sure that there, I mean, there have been occasions in another Johnson government when um, legislation that clearly had all sorts of unintended consequences was introduced in the Commons, um, you know, not properly thought out, and it was almost completely rewritten when it came to the House of Lords. Yep. Um, you know, just, just to get it right, technically. Um, you know, leave aside the, the politics uh, or the objectives <coughs> of it. Um, so added, added that, I'll stop there, but the, adding to that, it, you know, we haven't worked out what the role of the upper house should be. I, my view is that the current system 
uh, for the House of Lords is not something that is defensible in a modern democracy. Um, not, not to denigrate the work that William and, and Andrew and you know, lots of other peers do, but a combination of, of, of um, a few ancestral rights and lots of prime ministerial patronage from both part, big parties. And, you know, it's, but we've never defined what the powers should be, what the extent to which the Lords or, or replacement assembly should have a mandate for um, checking or even reversing what's in the Commons. This is why I've always voted for uh, an elected upper house. But the, um, so, so I think on a, for a number of counts, I think Parliament is not doing its job adequately, and which makes the sort of ideas that the Institute report, uh, the Bennett Institute are bringing forward is, is, are um, very timely indeed. Thank you. Um, and thanks for the, the plug. Uh, we always appreciate that. Um, Angela, so having served in both the House of Commons and the House of Lords, what do you think makes the, the difference to how well members are able to perform that scrutiny function? What is it about the role of those uh, two different uh, chambers that um, results in quite different outputs on legislation? I think David partly answered some of it when he said about the role of MPs yeah. and the workload. Yeah. I've, you know, I was an MP for 13 years. I went to interest staff, David, in 1997. And I used to say that my work was in thirds. They weren't equal thirds, but a third was an advocate for my constituency. Another third was the casework for your constituency. And that should inform the third part of your work in Parliament. And you found the parliamentary time, if you let it, get increasingly squeezed. And people would say, well, I haven't got time to come to the chamber for a debate. I'm doing my casework. And that's not sustainable. So I think workload plays a part. Whereas in the Lords, that's our focus. And I slightly disagree when you say we've not defined the Lords' powers. I think we pretty much have. And you and I would call a conversation on statutory instruments, which we may share yeah. if anyone's nerdy as we are to have this <laughs> conversation at some point, uh, when David was leader and I was leader. Um, but there is this sort of... We focus on legislation. That's what we do. We haven't got the distractions of constituency. There's other things we do around that, but holding the government to account legislation is what we do. And I sometimes get, you know, there'll be different views on whether the current constitution of the House of Lords is right. I think there's big change to be made in the appointments and certainly in the size and those kinds of issues. But I think we do understand that our role is scrutiny legislation. But I think we've stopped valuing scrutiny as an objective in Parliament. And I think MPs and peers are a bit at fault. I think the media is also at fault. Um, if we take two examples, if we look at when we had the Brexit debate, whatever your individual views on the issue, it was a toxic debate. Yeah. And if you said, there was, I suppose there were people who said, people have spoken, there's been a result on the referendum, that's it, just got to do it. You had those that say, well, that's the principle, How do, what's the detail of this? And those that said, well, we shouldn't be doing it, we'll have another referendum, it wasn't big enough. That middle group that was saying we've got to scrutinise, look at the detail, the abuse that we got in the press yeah. and enemies of the people, um, dinosaurs in the Lords. And yet what we were doing was scrutinising legislation. But because of the, I suppose, the unique significance of that piece of legislation, it became quite toxic. I was doing a TV programme recently, you know, Daily Politics, Politics Live. And uh, there was a Conservative MP, though you would agree with me rather than the MP, so it's not necessarily a political point. And the point was made, how's the government going to get all its legislation through And um, when there's so much of it and you're running out of time? And the answer was, well, it's House of Lords, it takes too long. We do something in half a day and they take a week. And I said, well, that probably says more about the House of Commons than the House of Lords. And the answer was, we just get on with it. 
And I think that's the problem. There's an impatience in government to get legislation through. And I think ministers have lost the ability in the Lords to have the authority to say, I'm taking this back, which when I first went in in uh, 2010 when I lost, you were able to do. The other problem, I think, has been the pandemic, where we worked remotely a lot. And that creates, I think, a transactional way of working rather than a deliberative way of working. So I think all those things are repairable, and I think Parliament has to take responsibility for constitutional scrutiny, but we're not doing it as well as we should. And again, another plug, that's why the review is so timely. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, Lord Wallace, um, you've been in in the House of Lords for some time and witnessed some of the the trends that we've been talking about. Obviously, the position of the the Liberal Democrats is in favour of House of Lords reform and and the democratic mandate. So to what extent do you think it's legitimate that the government or the House of Commons might push back against some of the changes that have been made in the House of Lords in the absence of a democratic mandate or do you think that that's an essential role uh, until that 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 reform takes place? The argument that the Lords is democratically illegitimate is rolled out every time the Lords makes some powerful criticism of particular bills that the government wants to get through. Um, Yes the House of Lords is democratically illegitimate uh, but actually in the last 20 years we've come to see our role as We're the House that examines legislation. The Commons has almost given up detailed scrutiny of government bills. I'm struck that I I look at the report stage, I'm third reading in the Commons, and often that takes sometimes three or four hours. Um, Yesterday we had, was it the seventh day of report on the levelling up bill? Um, With seven votes. (laughs) And seven votes. uh, With a lot of really detailed stuff. So if you ask, what do the Lords think our role is now, it is above all, we're the house that picks up badly drafted bills, and there have been some astonishingly badly drafted bills coming coming in recently, and tries uh, to improve them and to make reasoned arguments back to ministers and to the commons. And as you probably know if you're really nerdish about legislation, um, when government amendments are introduced which change uh, the terms of the bill to meet the arguments to be made by the opposition, that's working in practice. Of course, the Lords is indefensible, um, but so is the Commons in its current form. Um, If you look at the number of people who are attached to the government, I was being told the other day of a trade envoy who'd been dismissed for voting against the government. So the, the patronage has spread even more than before with all these government advisers and so on. Um, The Commons does not do a proper job. Um, And if you ask what does the Lords do about its constitutional role, let me just take two examples. Um, The Elections Bill, um, which was removing the independence of the Election Commission and refusing the recommendations of the Committee on Science and Public Life on political finance, um, and extending uh, the franchise quite substantially to overseas voters who'd been abroad. Um, there were some really large issues there that we tried to uh, to push, and which the government pushed back against, and which, I have to say, Angela, the, uh, on the second round of ping pong, 
the Labour peers went home in large numbers and we lost it. Um, and it second round of ping pong, okay. we both fit three times by oh. that point. Um, <laughs> and if I take it to the second one, which is the SI question, which is actually deeply constitutional, we've been having more and more skeleton bills. Mm. Um, on the procurement bill, for example, um, there, was a, there is a section which says strategic objectives. And under that, the next clause says, the Secretary of State shall produce a paper which sets out the strategic objectives. So the strategic objectives are not spelt out on the face of the bill. And there's a great deal of that going through with secondary and tertiary legislation. And uh, Lords committees chaired by crossbenchers or conservatives have been making that point very strongly and the government has not given way. So when we attempt to do our constitutional role, it's not welcomed. I sit in the Lords facing Chairman of the Committee on Standards and Public Life, a former Prime Ministerial Independent Advisor, um, Chairman of the, House, uh, of the House of Lords Appointment Committee, and on the Conservative benches, uh, Chair of ACABA and a, a former Chair of, of ACABA, the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments. Um, we have a lot of expertise, not to mention former Supreme Court judges, but it doesn't bite, and we don't yet have any way of making those constitutional issues bite. Great, thank you. I mean, Hannah, one of the things we've heard from the panel is that the scrutiny in the House of Commons um, is perhaps not as, as good as it could be. To what extent do you think this is the dynamics of our kind of constitutional system? Or to what extent do you think that there are um, powers that the House of Commons is lacking to be able to have those opportunities to, to better safeguard the constitution? So there's a lot in that question, Jess. I, mean, I think the first question, which I mean, point which people might raise is, you know, is it the job of the House of Commons to safeguard the Constitution? And, uh, and I think, as with every institution within our Constitution, they all, they all have that responsibility. They all have the responsibility to think about their own role and how they're interacting with, with other um, parts of the Constitution. We've talked a lot about... The panel's talked a lot about legislation, and obviously constitutional change often happens through legislation. But the thing, and, and we make recommendations in our final report about how that could be done more carefully, I think, by, by the House of Commons. I think the other sort of aspect which we've not touched on so much, but is really critical within sort of, if you're, if you're asking about the role of the Commons in safeguarding constitution is, of course, the way in which politics plays out within the House of Commons. Um, you know, we've seen in recent years the um, processes within the House of Commons lead to real political con consequences for people for acts in relation to the constitution, so the Privileges Committee inquiry uh, being one um, very clear example of uh, Parliament's taking a view on uh, what it saw as, as inappropriate behaviour by Boris, Boris Johnson and that having political consequences for him. And of course, Parliament, the House of Commons is the sort of crucible in which politics plays out, in which party, mem party MPs decide you know, on the, the fate of their uh, leaders and their, um, their, their members. So I think you know, there are different views on the extent to which the re recent years have, have shown our constitution working because when things mm -hmm. have um, uh, questions have been raised, um, there has been a, an ability of, of, of the, the constitution to respond. But I think that what we're trying to get at in in this final report is that actually 
we can't necessarily just rely on uh, norms and uh, precedent uh, to, to to make sure this always happens. I think we've been I think we've been a bit too close to the line in some of these um, situations. And we think that when you're thinking about, in particularly, like proactive constitutional change, arguably the House of Commons needs um, uh, a more robust process to almost force MPs to really think through uh, the, the sort of constitutional consequences of any changes that are being proposed. Thank you. Um, David, I'd be interested in, in your thoughts on that. I mean, over the recent period, um, particularly over the, the Brexit process, we've seen um, some legislation that some might consider to be testing constitutional boundaries. I'm thinking here around um, some of the proposals on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which would mm. potentially contravene um, international law, and also the UK Internal Market Act, which raised a lot of concerns um, amongst the devolved governments. Passed the House of Commons um, quite quickly um, and with, with not a huge amount of, of opposition. How well do you think... What, what's the role in political parties, I suppose, in that? And are there things, sh should perhaps MPs be more independent-minded when it comes to these constitutional questions? I think, there's a, I think there's a real challenge. I think, well, constitutional questions is one thing. I think, I think actually one of the problems that, that we've got at the moment is, is the, the MPs not looking at constitutional or national matters at all, because what Andrew talked about, the, the, the experience of working remotely during the pandemic, coupled with social media and the decline of local newspapers and broadcasting, means that MPs are positioning themselves increasingly, you know, whether left or right, as, as local champions and starting to believe their own propaganda that, that they will get elected on the basis of how effective they are. They're not because of whether they have a a, a, a blue, red, or orange rosette on them. Um, and, and I think there's a genuine problem, I think, for governments of any, of any party uh, there, and also for the focus on national and constitutional roles. I, I mean, political parties, I mean, they have a role, but I, I, I frankly think the, the answer lies in reform of procedures within Parliament. I'm completely with Hannah in believing that the good chap theory of checks and balances has now been tested to destruction. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's just the experience of the Johnson government, um, but I think that has demonstrated the case um, overwhelmingly. And you can point to um, the internal market. So I think internal market, I actually think there was, there's an argument because there was not, I remember looking at this whole question, there was not clarity about uh, when we left the EU as to where, given the Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland Act, the powers should ultimately lie given the existence of a UK single market. Um, but of 150 plus areas of policy coming back from Brussels to go to the UK, we, we when I was Chancellor the Duchy, we got agreement with the devolved on all but four of those on how they should be managed. There's a lot that can be done on devolution by looking at the structures of Whitehall, having proper consultation framework agreements and so on. Um, but it's not just Johnson. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I think one of the things I, I, I do think needs to change is government control over closure motions. Closure motions are the tool by which governments, particularly with large majorities, um, uh, limit the ability of the House of Commons to debate uh, uh, and amend legislation. 
I can remember when I was new MP, so back just after Angela came in, it's the, the um, Freedom of Information Bill uh, that came in. It was before the curtailing of late sittings. And I remember Jack Straw, who was Home Secretary then, at two o'clock in the morning, um, on his feet at report stage, answering detailed amendments from senior um, people on his own benches and on mine, because that then that was the convention was it's a seriously important issue at report stage. The Secretary of State personally would take charge of answering this, and the debate ran on for as long as was necessary. Now, I'm not in favour of filibusters. I'm not in favour of sitting till three or four in the morning uh, with most backbenchers utterly bored sitting in the bar. Or having disappeared. Or having disappeared. Having, well, <laughs> it's easier on the opposition side than on the government. <laughs> but the, um, and uh, I, I wouldn't go back to that, but we've lost that safety valve of time being available where there's a genuinely important legislative issue to be debated. So personally, I would give the, um, the power over programme motions to a backbench business committee or a backbench procedure committee, whatever you want to to call it, so the government could make its case. Um, I think ultimately the government have the power to override a committee's recommendation, but it shouldn't be something just the government puts forward, and only the, only the government puts forward, which is the case at the, at the, at the moment, where for programming uh, limitations on debate, which is too often used to crowd out at report and committee, particularly at report, any debate about an amendment that the government finds embarrassing because it might provoke rebellion on its own benches. And I would also insist that all legislation, unless it is genuinely of an emergency character, in which case you, you probably have to have a, some post-legislative scrutiny at an early date or sunset clause, but almost all legislation, I believe, should be subject to draft legislation, uh, which should be scrutinised by a special select committee um, with evidence being taken, witnesses interrogated, before you even start on the first reading of the formal legislative process. I think that allows you to spot deficiencies in the bills. It encourages team working across party lines in that special select committee structure. And it also means you'll get better quality legislation at the end of the day with the, the pause for thought sort of built into that process. Thanks, David. Um, and pre-legislative scrutiny is one of our uh, recommendations that we make in our paper on the legislative process that was published earlier um, in this uh, course of this review. Um, we'll come on to kind of specific parliamentary reforms in a minute, but I just want to kind of zoom out a bit again. Um, and I'm interested in uh, what you were saying, uh, David, about the sort of the local link sometimes preventing MPs from considering the systems as a whole. And I wanted to talk a bit about that in the context of proposed reforms to the House of Lords. Um, the Gordon Brown Review recommended an assembly of nations and regions which would uh, tie members of the second chamber to a sort of specific regional or national area, which is not currently the case. I'd be interested, Angela, in what you thought the implications of that might be for scrutiny, whether it might change that the, the role that the second chamber currently performs if there is a sort of local aspect to that? It could do. Once you have a, a geographical representation, your focus has to turn to those who elect you and that mm -hmm. ge geography. So I think that's a sort of a matter of fact. Though um, Gordon's report also looked at saying that the second chamber, whatever you call it, should have a greater responsibility mm. for the constitutional constitutional legislation. Where he gets into difficulty on that is how do you define constitutional legislation and what is it? 
And I think there's sort of a whole range of things that are obvious and there's grey areas. I think that's a difficulty. So I think having, I think for MPs, I'm kinder to MPs, I think. I, I feel a bit sorry. For, I'm glad I'm not an MP anymore in many ways. <laughs> um, but I think the pressures on MPs are enormous. It is true. And MPs don't not do proper scrutiny because they're not interested. Yeah. They're just trying, other things crowd it out too often. Um, and it gets really difficult. And as we've seen, I think, in um, part of the report, it looks at how much time the House of Commons spends on scrutiny of legislation compared with the House of Lords. And the Lord, which does still sometimes sit till 2 a.m., I don't recommend it <laughs> as a good way of doing legislation. Um, but we sit longer and later, and it's been a great proportion of our time in legislation. And one of the things was backbench business, which, of course, if you're, if you're having more backbench business, that's great for backbenchers. I can have a debate about my constituency. I can raise this issue. It's important to me. But what you're not doing is holding the government to account. So what looks like a really important parliamentary reform to give more power to backbenchers actually probably gave more power um, to the government. Um, I think this whole area of, is quite difficult for MPs and peers. It's somewhat easier that, although we haven't got geographical representations, we do come from all over the country, um, and people bring that as in more of their skills and their geography to it. But can I pick up on David's point about how you do scrutiny? And I think there's a danger, and I think it's we do have to embed something, the Peter Hennessy thing, which is good chaps, which I always wince at slightly, with the good chaps theory of government. Um, is it dead, or can it be revived? And I think the jury's still out. Um, I'd like to think it can be revived. I'm not convinced. But do you have to bring in mechanisms? There's a danger of looking for structural answers to political problems. So coalition government in 2015, there were two issues. One, how do we ensure the coalition survives when we have stability in government? And we ended up with the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which wasn't scrutinised as well as it should be, and it didn't last very long after that at all. And then we had English votes for English laws. And I went back yesterday and today and looked at the debate we had in the House of Lords. It was introduced. How that was brought in, and that's quite a significant constitutional change. It was 22 pages of amendments to the standing orders of the House of Commons, which had two days of debate, one in July, and then one in September when they had a series of votes. Now, that was significant. No one could tell us, and I would just become leader um, of the Labour group in the House of Lords, no one gave us any indication of how it would impact on how we looked at legislation, what were the implications. We, we couldn't get any answers. Um, so there is, I think, I think, that you do need to have some kind of mechanisms to ensure we do it better. But I also think there's got to be a cultural shift in what we expect of our politicians in both houses as well. It can't just be, oh, we've got those rules, because people then find ways of changing them, breaking them, working around them. It's got to be, I think, a mechanism and a cultural shift. But if, we, if you make... And it is a really difficult issue about how you have an effective second chamber. I must admit, I'm more interested in what it does. I think we focus a lot in terms of reform on who's there. And I'm not sure we've got the current system right. Um, and there's things we should do. But the powers are largely defined if people stick within the rules. But there is, that is going to be, I think, a crucial thing. And you can't change one house without having an impact on the other. So we have to look at both houses as a whole parliament approach. Yeah. Um, 
Lord Potts, I wanted to, to bring you in here um, to get your views um, on whether you think reform of the House of Lords would um, improve scrutiny because the Lords might have more of a mandate or whether actually changes to the form might interrupt that delicate balance that makes the Lords very good at what it does at the moment. Let me just make one passing mark on the underlying principles here. I've been very struck since the referendum, that we, which was fought on the restoration of parliamentary sovereignty, mm. That what we then found was the ministers and Boris Johnson, above all, arguing popular sovereignty against parliamentary sovereignty. And actually what we were having was executive sovereignty. Uh, The government says what he's going to do and shut up parliament. So we are very confused about some very fundamental principles. And if we were to re-establish parliamentary sovereignty, then changing the way the House of Commons operates having control of its own business, etc., would be a very important mm. part of that. Mm. In terms of Lord's uh, reform, yes, I mean, when I was appointed, I rather hoped that I'd been in for five or ten years and then I'd stand for election in Yorkshire. Um, it's actually one of the things that I think little appreciated about the House of Lords is some of the most useful people in the Lords are those who are former leaders of local councils. Um, because they know how politics operates on the ground. And I work very closely with some... I've known Judith Blake for years before she came to the Commons, for example. I've worked with Lord Patel and with various Conservatives from Yorkshire because there are Yorkshire issues. So there's a bit of regionalism around. And I think it would strengthen... It would certainly help to prevent the progressive dismantling of English local government, which has been going on in the last 15 years, if we had regional representation in the Lords. Um, Having been the minister who was detailed off to try to take Lords reform through in 2011 to 12, and and that was a very painful experience, which was blocked by by the Commons, uh, I think actually reforming the Commons comes first and the two will then go together. I, I think we should not spend too much time discussing the detail of the next stage of House of Lords reform. We need to do something about the Commons first. So onto the Commons, um, Hannah, one of the arguments that um, some people make is that in order to improve scrutiny in the House of Commons, uh, the best way to do that would be to change the electoral system because it would prevent the government having these large majorities, which it's able to easily pass legislation. It would empower Parliament in this way. Now, this is one of the questions that we looked at at the review. We looked at the constitutional consequences of electoral reform rather than necessarily advocating for or against. But how do you think that electoral reform would affect the dynamics in Parliament and could it potentially be an answer to some of the problems that we've raised? So I think, as you say, we we didn't look at the desirability of electoral reform, but rather at what its consequences would be for the Constitution. Um, I, I think the answer is you can't be entirely certain. If you look at other constitutional systems, they've been set up on the assumption that PR would lead to uh, more coalitions, a greater need for um, parties to negotiate their programme for government. Um, But it's not always turned out that way. Um, And, uh, you know, you get a whole variety of of different outcomes from uh, a a more proportional way of of electing your politicians. And sometimes that's a minority government, sometimes that's a coalition, sometimes it's a majority. Um, But as you say, 
it makes it less likely that you get one party with a large majority. And I think that would change the way in which the House of Commons has to operate. Um, there are some obvious things about how you would have to have mechanisms to, to achieve sort of consensus. You'd have to think about the time available to different parties to speak, uh, places on select committees, those sorts of things. Um, you might want to change the chamber if you didn't have such an oppositional um, yes. uh, setup. Yes. But I think the, the most important question would be how, if you did electoral reform, it changed parliamentary culture, to go back to the point that um, Angela was talking about. And that is slightly unknowable. And I think if you look at the example of New Zealand, you can see it sort of evolved over time there. <clears throat> but I think one of the conclusions I drew from the piece of work we did um, on, on this is that actually you don't necessarily have, uh, you know, and some people advocate electoral reform and others are less keen, but there are actually changes which might happen as a consequence of electoral reform, which could also uh, happen in the absence of electoral reform. So I think uh, I'm very much in agreement with the panel that um, you know, we need to reflect on how both houses work um, and there might be some changes that are, are desirable, uh, whether or not you go for a, a big bang uh, look at the electoral system. Thank you. Um, I mean, one of the things that we've already discussed is some of the kind of uh, various pulls on MPs' time and the kind of constraints they're under. I also wondered how much you felt that MPs were not necessarily empowered with the information or the understanding that they needed to talk about the Constitution and to potentially challenge actors on the Constitution. It's one of the themes in, in our final report. David, I'd be interested in, in your views on that. I don't think there's any shortage of information if people um, have the time and inclination to seek it out. I do think that um, the induction of new MPs can be improved. It's a lot better now than it was when I was elected, when you were basically told to um, explore the building in your first two weeks, and if you got lost, ask a policeman. You know, it was the uh, it really was that that basic. And to um, and when the bell rang, you had to be in the voting lobby within. Um, sort of six minutes. Um, it was a famous occasion when Sebco didn't quite make it. Um, but the, the, um, and um, uh, but so I, I, I yes, sort of. I do think that courses are, you know offer some module on when people are first elected on the constitutional role of parliament, but and the how how parliamentary procedure works. Mm -hmm. Actually, to tell MPs that. You know, you need to, you know, the, the clerks are there to advise any MP. And actually, um, my experience, having done 13 years in opposition, sort of on, on the front bench or as PPS to the then leader, the clerks quite enjoy um, helping um, sort of insurrectionist backbenchers and opposition MPs to find a way to make life difficult for the government of the day. You know, they're, 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 they're sort of, they say, well, if you want to, yes, you actually want to, well, you think about doing it this way. Um, so the opportunities are there, and perhaps the signposts need to be mm -hmm. to be better. I think is how I would how I would put it. Fantastic. Um, and Hannah, obviously, the IFG has an academy program looking for training for ministers. From from that experience, what do you think it's essential that new MPs who might be joining after the next election know and understand about the political system? Well, as you say, yes, we've, we've long done training um, uh, with ministers to help them understand their role and how government works and how they can be more effective. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, I feel really sorry for people joining Parliament given the um, complexity of, of how it works, but also the fact that the odds of um, 
sort of forming an independent view of what their role could be and what they can make of it are, are sort of rather stymied by the whips who have quite a strong interest in controlling what it is that MPs think of as their role um, and how they ought to operate. And so I think, you know, what we've seen in the last few years are quite a lot of bad habits, essentially, established on mm -hmm. the side of government, but also the expectations that MPs, a third of whom have joined the House of Commons since 2017, have of what their role is. And actually, I think it is quite important that we all think about how to establish sort of good habits at the start of the parliament. Um, and, you know, as has already been referred to, what expectations are of the sort of role that MPs should be able to play in scrutiny of legislation and so on. Um, I think it is important to, that MPs get that sort of input and, and advice on that. But there's, been, there's also, Hannah, sort of been a, there's been a shift in expectations of MPs as regards government. I mean, and it happens gradually because not, you know, there's not a complete switch over new generation every election. But um, I remember talk, you talk, talking to, when I talked talk to people who were my seniors when I was newly elected, um, who were in Parliament in the you know, 60s, 70s, they would say that there were lots of MPs on both uh, Conservative and Labour parties who had no expectation of going to Parliament in order to be ministers. Yeah. You know, they were there perhaps to, to represent their constituency, which they might visit as often as once a month. Um, um, not always that frequently. Um, there was a cup in, I think it's Maidstone Town Hall, which was presented to the then member, so some MPs back, on to, to mark his annual visit to the constituency. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I do remember one senior MP, when I, when I was in the Commons, saying to me, of course, my, what I do with my constituency post is put it all unopened in my locker. And then every few months, I clear out the locker and throw it away. So it's astonishing how most problems vanish if you leave them long enough. Um, and, so they, and, and there were sort of Tory squires and Labour trade unionists who didn't expect to be ministers, but they support the government, but they were also prepared to go to the whips and say, look, we're not going to put up with this. Um, you and I did that as well. We did that, yeah, we did do that. We did do that. Um, and I, do, I think there's more reluctance to, to do that nowadays than, than there once was. There is an issue, how, how the route to becoming an MP. When I became an MP, I was 38 years old and I was in the youngest 10, 15% yeah. of MPs. I've had people now say, well, I'm you know, coming up for 40. Someone said I'm too old to stand for Parliament for the first time. So you've got fewer people who have had careers outside Parliament <laughs> yeah. coming in. And that affects your confidence and how you act and what yes. you do. Um, I think it's also who your mentors are. And I had people like Robin Cook and Jack Straw, who'd been in Parliament a yeah. long time, and you learnt from them, and they were mm. good examples for you on it. And just an anecdote, I when Jack was Home Secretary, I was attached to the Home Office as a PPS. And John Burke had put down a question and we were reforming the probation service and the question he had in the order paper to come up at question, all questions was what is the new name of the probation service going to be? Because there had been some interesting anagrams, shall we say, an acronym <laughs> in the paper of what it could be. And the, the answer had been prepared for Jack, which gave no decisions yet been taken, blah, 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 blah. And he said, but we do know what it's going to be. It's going to be, grandly named, the probation service of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He said, so I'll give the answer. So he crossed out the civil servants draft and went to the house and he said, an MP has asked me the question, basically, yeah. and I will argue a truthful, honest answer, because yes. we have made the decision. Yeah. Now, I wonder if that would happen now. Yeah, I do wonder. Um, and I, I genuinely don't know, but it was this case and a lesson to me. It mattered what happens in Parliament. Yeah. You've got to be straight and you've got yes. to be honest about it. Yes. And 
I just think things have changed a little bit in that regard. I used to send, when I was a minister, I used to send back um, drafts to written answers oh, yeah. which dodged the question. Because I, yeah, I, I think this too. is perhaps yeah. to indicate the civil service would do it because they thought that's what ministers mm. wanted of them, which was you, if there was a, an answer that you, you, it would be embarrassing to the government to give, you sidestep it, you ignore the question, answer something <clears> slightly <throat> different. And that, that was just the wrong way to do it. If we have time at the end, I'll tell you another one, but <laughs> wrong questions now. Great, I think um, Lord Wallace wants to come in and then we'll go to the there's, question. There's a problem of political recruitment. And, and what I think we're mm. seeing now, and Michael Cook is doing his best to, to, to follow it, is the centralization of the selection of candidates yeah, in both major parties. And, and I read various comments on it. You know, people in CCHQ in, in and elsewhere are saying, um, what we want is people who are, are potentially good ministers and not all these idiotic local representatives, which is, of course, contradicts the way they have to behave when they get, when they get in. But that raises large questions about democratic choice yeah, I mean, there's uh, all... and, and, and uh, can I just add uh, the other problem is that patronage has expanded the number of PPSs yes, has grown yeah. uh, and then there are always trade envoys and others so that the, the expectations of getting somewhere nice uh, if, if you behave well mm. thus obeying the whips have grown and the expectation that actually being chair of a select committee is the most important thing to be in life, has not competed with that enough yet, right. yeah, since the select committee is extremely important. So I think any new government should make it a priority to cut the number of PPSs and probably cut the number of junior ministers as well. Put a few more ministers in the Lords. <laughs> okay, great. Um, I want to make sure there's plenty of time for questions. If you're watching online, please do um, uh, submit your questions by Slido, but I'll start by taking some in the room. Yes, we've got... Well, we're going to take them in groups of threes and then we'll answer. We've got Tom, Alan, <coughs> and then there's a lady at the back of there as well. Uh, Tom Brake from Unlock Democracy. Um, a lot of the problems stem from poor primary legislation, uh, and I'm just wondering what could be done to make sure that governments produce primary legislation that, that doesn't have uh, the level of flaws in it that uh, I think David Lidington and others have referred to. Uh, hi, Alan Rennick from the UCL Constitution Unit. Over here. Um, several of you have, suge have suggested that it's a problem that MPs spend so much time on constituency work. So what practically would it be possible to do? Can you change the incentive structures in some way to address that? Hi, um, Hattie Simpson, A-level student. Uh, considering scrutiny within the House of Commons, PMQs is one of the most public-facing areas of scrutiny. <laughs> um, yet in recent decades, we've seen it become little more than political point scoring. How do we consider reform of one of these most public-facing areas of parliamentary debate? Oh, great question. So three questions there, one on the poor um, quality of primary legislation, another on um, should, uh, should we change the incentive structures for MPs on constituency work, can we change that, um, and one on PMQs and whether that is still a useful scrutiny function. Um, I'll start with, with Hannah um, and then if we go around the panel uh, this way. Um, so I think I'll, just, I'll take one and let other people... Uh, address others. Uh, I'll take your question, Tom, on legislation, seeing we produced a paper on this in the review. I mean, I think it, we have definitely got into a situation where there's a lot of performative um, legislation which isn't necessarily intended even to achieve anything or may not even be commenced, but the point is to look busy and to look like you're doing something. 
Um, but we, another problem we've had is uh, legislation being introduced um, when it's not ready, essentially, because, again, there's a wish to um, be seen to be doing something. So the recommendations we've made in our paper are about in, in increasing the level of scrutiny, which I think would act as an incentive to secretaries of state to, to know what they're doing before they bring a, a bill in. Um, we talk about expanding pre-legislative scrutiny, so having an expectation of pre-legislative scrutiny, which I think is something that any new government coming in at the start of a parliamentary term needs to think really carefully about the balance uh, of, of, of what they you know, have ready to go and what would actually really benefit from a deeper level of, of scrutiny, which has the benefit of upping the level of expertise within the House of Commons to think about the issues that are within a bill. Um, as well as giving the government opportunity to reflect on a piece of legislation before they introduce it uh, properly as, as a bill. Of course, the government might see that as a disadvantage because they have a whole set of MPs who are up to speed <laughs> on the issues before they bring in their bill. But actually, the, the ideal is that it means that technical issues and, and big questions get sort of resolved before the legislative process starts. But we also talk about how you can harness the expertise of select committees in the legislative scrutiny process. And we think there ought to be um, something called a select committee stage, whereby a select committee that has expertise in the area that, that a bill covers can sort of trigger and say, actually, before you get into line-by-line -line scrutiny after second reading, we would like the time, please, to you know, either just do a single evidence session or perhaps a couple of evidence sessions and a little report to inform the House and to take a view on this piece of legislation. So we're not saying, as some uh, parliaments do, that you combine select committees and legislative committees, because I think there are some real downsides to doing that. But I think, and you know, it would need to be used sparingly in order not to gum up the whole system. But where select committees really felt that there were some su substantial policy issues that they wanted to get into, they could call for that. And then that would mean that, as I say, secretaries of state might need to think more carefully before they introduce a bill to make sure it really represents what they want to do so that they can then defend that in that process and, and have that interaction with Parliament. Now, you know, saying all this, it feels a long way from where we are now, but actually I think, you know, we, as I've said more generally, I think we really are due a reset in terms of um, uh, the legislative process. We've had some very, um, <clears throat> what I would think of as a former parliamentary clerk, as, as bad practice in terms of the speed of which governments got used to being able to legislate. And I think that's really bad for all of us in terms of the quality of the legislation that ends up in the statute book. On constituency work, I think part of the problem is the decline of local government mm. and how many, how many of the things that used to yeah. be dealt with by local government are now dealt with from the centre. And if Michael Gove is here for much longer, everything will be uh, dealt with from the centre. Uh, so that people go to their MP, and since there are many, many fewer local councillors, uh, people don't know their local councillors the way they did a generation ago. So I, that's one issue there. On quality of legislation, I think the speed of ministerial turnover has affected what's been happening. Clearly, the legislative process agreeing within Whitehall has broken down. There have been occasions on which, um, one particular occasion on the National Security Bill, when the Home Office introduced an entire extra part to the National Security Bill at committee stage in the Commons, which very strong rumour had it had not been cleared with some other key departments in Whitehall. I mean, that tells you that government isn't working well at all, and probably some civil servants have got quite demoralised by it. I'm going to do quick-fire answers. Um, look, Patty, on um, the PMQs, if I'm honest, I think that ship sailed 
it's never really been scrutiny. Um, it used to be twice a week for 15 minutes um, to occasions. Tony Blair changed it to once a week. Um, perhaps the way around it is to have more coverage, perhaps even two channels, one for the Commons and one from the Lords, not the sort of, you put the Lords on after the Commons have gone home, um, to see what's really happening in Parliament, people are interested. But I think the ship has sailed. It's now, I think it's theatre, if I'm honest. I don't watch it very often anymore, which is, don't tell Keir. Um, <laughs> on the primary ledge, I think Hannah and, um, has got a spot on, but I think also the questions government asked, do we need legislation to do this? Is this yeah. the way to do it? I think, is the policy objective clear? And if we've got things wrong, are we willing to change? Give ministers the authority to listen to the Commons or the Lords, and if they think something should change, go back to the Secretary of State and say, we, need, we, we can do this differently. But that seems to be, once it's published, that's it, we can't change anything. Um, and there have been two examples in the Lords where things haven't been through the Commons, in both the Public Order Bill and in the Levelling Up Bill, where there have just been new chunks introduced yep. at a late stage in the House of Lords, which is ridiculous, had no proper scrutiny at all. And just, Alan, I think um, on the constituents, I think, right, some people go to their MP as the first point of call now, before anything. And part of that, you know, I'm struggling with a local council at the moment, trying to get an answer out of somebody. It gets frustrated. Oh, my MP will reply to me. And people do that. Um, and I think it's actually getting back to some MPs to say, your constituency work, your casework, isn't an end in itself that you obviously want to help people, but it is a way to inform what you do in Parliament and try and get that message over might be helpful. David. Uh, I mean, on, 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 on uh, legislation, and I agree with, with, with what <coughs> others have said. It's partly, I think, uh, pre-legislative scrutiny, as I mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. I think post-legislative scrutiny <laughs> is underestimated. Um, select committees are supposed to do that, but too often it's not sexy enough. I mean, perhaps you need a clause in every bill to say that um, the Secretary of State shall, shall after, let us say, three years, um, present a report to Parliament on um, how the bill has worked out in practice. Um, and, and, you know, and, it, it, and Parliament needs to find occasions then to scrutinise that and debate that. Um, you know, one could make more use of sunset clauses, particularly for secondary legislation, for statutory instruments, I think. You know, but with the possibility of just renewing them by a vote, if, if that's, but then you introduce a check where you go back and say, has this legislation done any good? Or is it actually being useless or even damaging altogether? Uh, and I think or, or not even implemented. Or not even implemented, yes, absolutely. Or, and William, William was right in talking about, I think some, what we've seen recently has been a failure of breakdown in governance. It's about political culture. I mean, when I was leader of the House, Theresa May said to me that the PBL, the Public uh, Business and Legislation Committee, which I chaired, needed to be the toughest committee for any minister to go through because <coughs> ministers had to come in without officials to um, uh, uh, propose that they should be given permission to bring a bill in. And you test them on Henry VIII clauses. You test them on whether they... You know, where are the points of controversy with the opposition, with people on the government backbenches, with local government? With, have you thought through the devolved implications of this? And, you know, we were pretty tough. Um, and my, Amber Rudd is a very good friend of of Mike gave a really hard time in, in a session, and she said to me, after David, I, that's the most brutal treatment I've ever had from any parliamentary <laughs> colleagues. Um, and I got another, another minister, I won't name, but, but you know, wanted to bring <laughs> in a transport bill to cover autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, aviation reform, and the regulation of rickshaws in London. <laughs> uh, this bill was going to be about 250 clauses. Sounds like the levelling up bill. Uh, <laughs> Quite. And, uh, and, you know, basically, 
was that minister was sent away with a bit of a flea in his ear and was allowed to have a cut, cut down version of it. Um, so there'd be various things to be, to, to be, to be used there. Um, Alan, I think, um, yeah, I, I agree with that, as I said, I mean, lo give local government proper powers again, including revenue raising powers. Um, and the Treasury under any national government is going to be very resistant to that. But I think that's the way one has <laughs> to go. I also think that if you adopt, um, whether it's at the select committee stage that William talked about, or, or, or pre-legislative scrutiny as a matter of routine for all bills, MPs are going to have to spend time on those bills. If you look at um, a p parliament that work, I think, better than the House of Commons, like the Bundestag, European Parliament, now there's heresy for you. Um, the, which, uh, you it's because every member sits on one or more committees, mm -hmm. and most of the time of the members of those houses is taken up on committee work, and the committee work really matters. So it's partly by insisting that these other things are meaty and interesting mm -hmm. and important that you get people off obsessing about um, emails. Bane of my life was people who booked 15 minutes to complain to me about their parking ticket. Um, I became more and more convinced the traffic warden usually got it completely right. Um, and Cathy, um, I'm a bit with Angela on this. I, I, I mean, I did PMQs when Theresa May was absent probably four or five times. Um, and I always likened it to the, it's the closest thing to going into the boxing ring that I'm ever likely to do in my life. I mean, it's a test of... It's a test of resilience, it's a test of authority. Um, it's a test of authority of both the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition, I think, you know, because it's the only time of the, the week that the Chamber is entirely packed and the press gallery is entirely packed. The press gallery normally is thinly populated and packs up at tea time anyway. Um, so, and, and so the mood amongst MPs, what they then talk about with the journalists rings them up, reflects their verdict on their leader at PMQs and feeds through their press coverage, so it's self-reinforcing. Uh, but I think we could make more of the liaison committee appearances. They probably should be more frequent and they, the Prime Minister shouldn't be allowed to keep rescheduling them. The liaison committee, I think, is getting better over time at actually coordinating this rather than it being a series of showboating outings for each select committee chair in turn. But that, it seems to me, is the tool for holding a Prime Minister to account. Great, thanks. I think we've got a chance for perhaps two more questions um, uh, if we keep answers brief. So um, over there and over here as well. Hi, um, I'm Gareth Williams. I support the work of the Independent Constitutional Commission in Wales, but I'm speaking very much on my own behalf, not on behalf of them. Um, I just wanted to ask, come back to your report, really, but I, I think members of the panel have an interest in it. So um, you said that the new Constitution Committee should be um, permanent, mm -hmm. but clearly your report is very much founded on not challenging parliamentary sovereignty. So, which in practice, I think, as we've talked about is effectively the sovereignty of the commons post the parliament acts mm -hmm. so what if a new government comes in and legislates to put in place the constitution committee and indeed the list of constitutional statutes what would prevent the next government from simply repealing that legislation by simple majority mm -hmm. great um, so there was a comment made earlier about how the recruitment of MPs now is more focused on, you know, people who are going to become ministers and sort of becoming more centralised rather than, you know, people who may just, you know, 
want to serve a certain regional interest. Do we think this is something that is, you know, more of a permanent trajectory that sort of is snowballing and can't be stopped? And if so, how do we handle that? Or is it something that is maybe a function of, you know, current political incentives at the time and could potentially be reversed? And is, is, is that the desirable end, sort of? Great, thank you. A couple of questions there. Um, one on some of our uh, recommendations, um, which I'll, I'll let Hannah take, but happy to come in on as well. Um, and another on political recruitment. So if we start with, with you, Hannah. Thanks, Gareth. Um, so we don't see this being a statutory committee. Uh, so we see this, as you rightly observe, being you know, potentially it would be subject to, to parliamentary sovereignty. It could be undone. Our hope um, and of course, you know, you would we would always like to already be at the point where, you know, you can see in the distance the possibility of being and you have to start somewhere. Our hope is that it, this becomes a sort of committee like the PAC, where, you know, it, it's not something that's readily undoable because of the, the sort of the quality and the fixed quality of its work and the fixed sort of point it becomes it, within the constitutional process. I think having an external body, as we've described, like the PAC-NAO relationship um, will help um, uh, give it authority um, and, and give it a sense of permanence. But I think the other analogy we were thinking about, and Jess mentioned this in, in her presentation in the first session, is with the Committee on Standards in Public Life, <clears throat> where it was, which was set up by John Major at a time when there was sort of a lot of consensus about it a problem which needed to be addressed. That was the sort of cross-party sense. Um, and the first work that it did was to establish those Nolan principles, which then gained traction across the public sector. Um, and really then it, it built its work from that foundation. And that's why we, we have this idea of this committee's, one of its first tasks being to try to articulate some of these constitutional principles on which we think our constitution is built. Um, and then sort of to go from there in terms of um, uh, it, its work. So we have these different analogies in mind for what we hope this, this, co this committee could do, but you are absolutely right that at the end of the day, uh, a, a government that decided uh, it was inconvenient could, under the model we propose, still get rid of it. Fantastic. And on um, political recruitment, Angela, did you want to come in on that? I think this is something that comes up ever since I've been a member of the Labour Party, which is a very long time. Um, and it's, you know, if you are a representative at national level of your political party, you're not just got a local audience, you are a national spokesperson. So political parties, all political parties, have some degree of authorisation for candidates who stand for them at national level. And I, think, I don't think there's any political party that doesn't do that. But at the end of the day, the choice is local people. So I think it's a two-stage thing. But I don't recall a single general election where somebody who's disappointed or somebody who hasn't got onto a shortlist in a particular area, somebody who hasn't been endorsed by their <coughs> national party has been upset about it. But I think it's a balance. If you're, if you're a member of a political party, you want to represent at a national level, you accept the national rules and the policies that you feed into. Um, you're not just a local representative. So I don't think it's quite as... Um, dogmatic or as authoritarian as some people would have it, but there has to be a, a basis of which somebody stands as a candidate for a political party. Well, Boris, did you want to come in I'm quickly? Just happily on that. <clears throat> I, I wonder whether, in some ways, parties, because they're becoming much more efficient, are also becoming more centralised. I was very struck the other week uh, in the Yorkshire Post story 
that the North Yorkshire Conservatives are complaining desperately they have been abandoned by the National Party because it's expecting them to raise their own money for the, direct, for the election of their local mayor. Now, you know, I thought that local association was supposed to raise money, and if the Conservatives in North Yorkshire can't raise enough money for a campaign, I wonder what's happening. But of course, the National Party now has huge amounts of money, which it does send down, and that alters the relationship. So I, I, I worry about the extent to which central and local tensions within parties are going. Just a rapid comment on joint committees. How the committee is appointed and how its chair is appointed is clearly extremely important. I'm <coughs> conscious of the argument that Boris Johnson had about the composition and chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee. Uh, we're going to have to think very hard how this committee is appointed, mm. maintained, mm. and how it's and just very briefly, I'll give you the final word. Uh, I mean, Gareth, I mean, I, yeah, it, 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 as Hannah said, you can't um, stop a future parliament legislating for change, but you can make the political cost uh, 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 of, of, of that heavier by, 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 by what you put in place. Um, I think that on, in terms of MPs, there's a, there's a problem which, which, which William's comments sort of took us towards, that, that local political party memberships are shrinking, you know, that there are not mm, mass parties. Yep. Now, Labour had a big boost at one stage. Um, Conservatives have tried different, thi different things to try and get more people to join locally. None of them have worked. Um, these are not the sort of organisations they were back in the 1950s. So they tend to be more narrowly based politically. Um, and also by law now, you have to have, um, if you're a candidate, you want to describe yourself as Conservative or Labour, because of the rules on funding, you have to have uh, an approval from the, 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 the party centrally so that, that the accounts are all um, in order. But I think the deterrent to getting really good quality people to uh, put themselves forward for Parliament uh, are not to do with centre local. I think it's to do with the increasingly uncivil uh, and polarised uh, notion of politics. When I was leader of the House, it was just after Joe Cox had been murdered. Um, so many MPs started to unburden themselves, particularly, but not just women, and MPs of ethnic minorities about, about the stuff they got. I saw the anti-Semitic material that had been sent to Luciana Birch. I saw some of the racist stuff sent to Diane Abbott. Uh, Cheryl Gillan told me about the stalker that she'd been contending with. For years to bars. Elwood told me about the death threats and the man who turned up with a sword at the House of Commons asking to see him. Um, you know, uh, when David Amos was murdered, MPs and candidates and potential candidates' families throughout the country, left, right, and centre, would all have been saying to the man or woman concerned, What the hell do you want to get into this yeah. for? Add into that the degrees, not threats, but just unpleasant scrutiny. Social media has reinvented the 18th century mob in a virtual form. Um, yes. and, uh, and, and I'm afraid that I, I now find it more difficult. I still encourage people, young men and women, if they ask me to, to go in, but it's much more an on balance uh, recommendation. And be aware if you do go in, grow a thick skin, because you're going to need it even more than my generation needed to do. And if we can't get to grips with that, um, then, then, then we're not going to get good people, uh, pe good people are being put off at present. Mm.
Fantastic. I think a really important note to end on there. So thank you, David. Um, that's all we have time for, I'm afraid. Um, I'd just like to thank my excellent panel. Um, if you could all stay seated, we're going to go straight into the next panel, which is what will the general election mean for the UK constitution? But before that, if you could just thank, uh, join me in thanking our panel. Thank you.